0: Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and, and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Moussa and Figue in our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Tensions remain high in the DRC as President Kabila's mandate ends, and AU Commission Chairperson calls for more intra-Africa trade. In sports news, judgment reserved in the FAFCC ball-tampering case. But first
1: up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning
2: to you. I'm Anne Musa. Gunfire have erupted in several parts of Kinshasa. The DRC's President, Joseph Kabila, appears set to stay on despite the expiry of his mandate. Shots rang out in several parts of the city. Kabila's second term has officially expired. State television overnight announced the formation of a new government following an agreement between Kabila's administration and a fringe opposition group. Outgoing UN Chief Ban Ki-moon has urged the UN South African government to reconsider its decision to withdraw from the International Criminal Court and the Rome Statute. In an exclusive interview, the outgoing Secretary General called the Rome Statute and the International Court it birthed the centerpiece of international criminal justice. South Africa. Had been
3: participating in the negotiation process of this uh, Rome Statute and was one of the staunch uh, supporters of this international criminal justice and one of the first countries to, to join this uh, Rome Statute. In that regard, uh, since uh, according to this uh, provision, there are still some time left, I sincerely hope that South Africa will change their. A decision and come back to return to uh, Rome Statue.
2: Kenyan officials say two Iranian men who were found with video footage on the Israeli embassy have been deported after a deal was reached to drop charges against him. The Against them, the two men had faced charges of collecting information to facilitate a terrorist attack. The men were deported on Sunday after a court order. Iran said the two men are lawyers who were in Kenya representing the two Iranians jailed for 15 years for terrorism. Turkey says it will not allow the shooting of the Russian ambassador to Ankara to cast a shadow over its relationship with Russia. Turkey's foreign ministry expressed its deep sadness about the killing of Ambassador Andrei Karlov, who was shot while delivering a speech in an art gallery. The off-duty policeman who shot Karlov after shouting, Don't forget Aleppo, was apparently killed by policemen who stormed the gallery after the shooting. Russia is a close ally of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and has been instrumental in helping the government recapture the city of Aleppo. After six years of war with rebel forces, it is not immediately clear who was behind the attack. Islamic State militants have been active in Turkey and carried out several bomb attacks on Turkish targets over the last year. And finally, Republican Donald Trump has been confirmed by the Electoral College as the official president-elect of the United States. Trump's claiming of 306 Electoral College votes in November's presidential victory over Hillary Clinton was confirmed, despite him losing the popular vote by close to 3 million votes nationally. Sharon Peace
4: reports. Trump reached the 270-vote threshold with Electoral College voters casting their ballots in different legislatures in state capitals across the country. The confirmation comes after efforts by some groups to convince electors to switch their votes to Clinton and thereby block Trump's claim on the presidency. If lobbying groups manage to persuade at least 36 electors to switch their vote away from Trump and both candidates then fail to reach 270 The task would have fallen to the House of Representatives to elect the next president, where Republicans hold a solid majority. Trump will be sworn in on January 20th in Washington, D.C. next year.
2: That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time.
0: Thank you, Anne. Workers and school children stayed at home and patrolling soldiers outnumbered civilians in some parts of the DRC's capital, Kinshasa, on Monday. As tensions rose with a few hours left of President Joseph Kabila's mandate, Kabila's second term ended at midnight, but he has shown no sign of stepping down and mediation talks have failed, sparking fears of fresh political violence in the mineral-rich, but unstable Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Louis Bamweze reports from Kinshasa.
5: No school, no bank, no shop was open this Monday. Only very few supermarkets opened here in Kinshasa, but they didn't get the biggest number of customers they are used to. The streets were very quiet and transport was very reduced since only very few state buses used for public transport could be seen on the roads, although they were empty most of the times. Inhabitants were under fear since nobody knows what might happen as president joseph kabila's last constitutional term ends this monday while both the ruling majority and the opposition rally haven't reached any agreement yet the number of policemen and soldiers posted at different corners and those patrolling on the streets is too big and this has increased the population's fear such a boost to the security is the same in all the towns of the democratic republic of congo the Congolese National Police has then explained that the heavy presence of security services is just to make sure there is no trouble and that people and their belongings are safe. Colonel Pierre is the DRC police spokesperson.
6: La police a été
5: the National Police has been informed that some bad people have decided to make some trouble this Monday. In order to ensure the population, the National police then decided to boost the security. This country's constitution allows only two terms in office for the president and indeed, this Monday, December 19th, was the date of the end of President Joseph Kabila's second and last term. But again, after a national dialogue concluded last October, the ruling majority, the civil society and some opposition political parties signed an agreement allowing him to remain non-power until the inauguration of a new election. the president. And according to this political analyst, Isaac Nguenza, this is not normal and what's needed here is the respect of the constitution that leads the country.
7: A country cannot be led by political agreement, by understanding, or by things that are different from what the constitution says. We have to follow the Constitution. We must abide by the Constitution. That's my view. As a political analyst, I believe as long as we are not standing in the Constitution, we're going to be having trouble all the time. Because now the majority, they are asking for a year or two more. The opposition says we need a special special regime. That means Getting either the president of the Senate to lead the transition or electing any other president out of President Kabila to lead the country to this uh, transition period. That's the problem. And that's why I'm scared. I don't believe they will get along on that point. And for the opposition, their last bullet is the people calling the people to get on the streets, to get... The actual presidential term at the end. Meanwhile,
5: the dialogue second round and the Catholic bishops facilitation that was suspended on Saturday will resume on Wednesday after the bishops' trip in Vatican. Jean-Noel Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa.
0: Following the endorsement of Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe as the 2018 election candidate for the ruling ZANU-PF party, it is feared factional fights are bound to intensify. Whilst the women and the National Wing endorsed Mugabe as the candidate, youth went further to recommend him for life presidency. Simon Machemwa has more from Harare.
8: It is now confirmed... Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe is now the 2018 presidential candidate for the ruling ZANU-PF following the endorsement made during the annual conference held in Mashingo, 300 kilometers south of the capital. When the announcement was made, almost all delegates stood up dancing with utmost celebration and urulations. Despite his age, the main party wing in the Women's League Wants Mugabe to lead the party in the 2018 polls against a divided opposition, whereas youths are vying for the life presidency. Meanwhile, Mugabe is now more concerned with factional fights in the party due to the absence of the succession plan. Already, his deputy Emerson Mnangagwa and the First Lady Grace Mugabe are at each other's throats over Mugabe's succession. Mugabe acknowledged factionalism is almost dividing the party amid concerns this would render them failures in 2018. Yes, Mugabe is an UPF candidate in 2018 but is he prepared for the gruesome fight Zimbabweans are wondering? Here is what Mugabe had to say.
6: A new culture of indiscipline, a culture of disrespect, and there is even contempt and arrogance when a member of the party, and we think that when you join the party, you are mature enough. Whether you join at 18, 9, 20, 19, 20, 21, you are mature enough to know that there are rules to be obeyed, there are ways to be followed.
8: Even though Mugabe is said to be under the whims of his wife, Grace, ironically, he asked his party followers to stop dictating how things should be done. Sadly, what Grace Mugabe says goes and she takes advantage of the husband's position of power
6: that you cannot dictate how things should be done. There are organs which follow rules and procedures of how things should be done. And no one person should stand out there and say, I want this to be done that way. Whether you are a former detainee or a a veteran or a member with no standing in the party you should always know how things are done so action was taken against some sadly enough including some we were outside with
8: Although Mugabe castigated party followers for using the social media such as Twitter to fight factional fights, the manner Professor Jonathan Moyo is doing, Mugabe was found wanting and unable to tame the outspoken professor who is believed to be Grace Mugabe's follower in G40.
6: Let us ensure that as we go into the year 2017, we will be united, we will be clear in our mind, we will know the rules of the party better, abide by them, and be principled members of the party, or principled leaders of the party even. The stability of the party, rests on all its organs operating harmoniously as they are operating
8: meanwhile mugabe might fight it out against a weak opposition that is so divided over power with every leader now forming their own opposition political party
0: And that report by Simon Muchemwa. Rwanda's President Paul Kagame has questioned the circumstances in which a number of genocide convicts have been released by the residual mechanism for criminal tribunals that took over genocide cases of Rwanda after International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda was closed last year. This comes after reports that two... Rwandan genocide convicts currently serving their prison term in Mali are going to be released. From Kigali, Silvanus Caramera reports.
9: President Ipur Kagame made the statement in a press conference in Kigali over the weekend. He said the release of the genocide perpetrators Ferdinand Himana and the Father Emmanuel Rukundo who are convicted of genocide is a blatant act of ignoring justice and that there must be hidden political agenda. tied to the decision.
3: The release of uh, people who
9: were already
3: actually prosecuted, sentenced and convicted. I think it was properly explained. Normally with such people say one who has been uh, sentenced to life imprisonment for so many years Mm -hmm. means they have been found guilty. uh, for them to be released without finishing their sentence, about three things that are followed, actually written and these are the rules, what they consider, Uh, including uh, consulting Rwanda where they come from. Uh, But the information that we have is that these people are being released without actually the three things being followed. Possibly, remotely, if there was anything followed, it is one, but even that is not explained how it got to be applied. If they're talking about people having repented uh, on top of good conduct and so on and so forth, being, having disassociated with them, themselves with uh, the crime they committed in in some way that is one of the considerations but even then if we were to say this is what was applied i think we were told by the experts and people who followed
9: closely that this is not even clear the president went on to state that the government of rwanda is looking into the matter to ascertain exactly what hidden agenda could be linked to the decision the head of Blames also went to the Catholic Church in Rwanda that has remained an apologetic for crimes committed by some of its priests here during the genocide. He wondered why the Vatican has asked for forgiveness in other countries from where its members assorted minors and not Rwanda, where they played a big role in the
3: genocide.
10: Elsewhere, they have asked for forgiveness. In any case, I see it as individuals who committed these crimes and wronged others. But those individuals, such as in the U.S. where church leaders sexually assaulted young children, the church did not instruct them to do so. Individuals did those things, but following their actions, it escalated and tarnished the image of the church. People condemned what had been done, and compensation was sought and provided for those affected. But it was done in a broad sense, and it was not done only there. It was also done in Ireland, in Australia. But when it comes to this country, people keep quiet. They claim it was done by individuals, that no one instructed or sent them to do what they did. Well, no one instructed those other individuals to do what they did as well. So my question would be, why didn't you handle both situations the same way? Because none of the perpetrators were instructed to act as they did anyway.
9: Last month, the Catholic Church here appeared publicly announced the, the acts committed by some of its followers. But government, leaders, and genocide survivors said the Vatican should do more to clean its tarnished image. Silvanus Kalimera, reporting for Channel Africa. Inikigali.
7: Namibia International Beach and Cultural Festival, Strand
6: Beach, Walvis Bay, Namibia. Twenty third, twenty fourth, twenty fifth of December. Music festival with international and local artists. Four night accommodation packages and activities available at Computicket Travel. Main events tickets available at Computicket. One hundred and fifteen Namibian dollars, one fifty rands, and one hundred and thirty pula. Tickets are available at Shoprite and Checkers. Get yours today. VIP is five hundred Namibian dollars. 500 rands or 380 pula. Hashtag Xmas in Namibia. Hashtag Harambe. Cultures of Southern Africa route is powered by Channel Africa. www.culturalfestival.net W cultural festival.net. Download the app today.
0: It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 metre band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 metre band to far west Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. The African Union Commission Chairperson, Dr. Nkosazana Zuma, says Africa should aim at becoming a continent of manufacturing countries while increasing trade among countries on the continent. Zuma was addressing the media in Durban about what the AU has achieved since she took over as chairperson in 2012. She has also called for the free movement of citizens of African countries on the continent, saying countries that have taken that Route, attract more tourists and increases their trade. Busima Kosini reports.
10: Lamini Zuma says inter-African trade has grown over the years, although it has not reached satisfactory levels. Africa is currently importing a lot of processed food. Raw materials that are exported are imported again as manufactured goods. Lamine Zuma says lowering trade tariffs among African countries can also enhance intercontinental trade.
11: About five years ago, the intra-African trade was only at about 12%. Today, it's about 18%. It's still very low compared to the average of 40% in other areas. So we need to increase the intra-African trade, but we can only do that if we manufacture and so we need to develop our industries whether it's in agriculture whether it's value addition for our minerals our natural resources and this will be great for intra-african trade but also for global trade
10: Zuma says the continent is beginning to improve on infrastructure development especially rail and road transport She says there are plans in place for a high-speed train while direct flights within the continent have also been established.
11: Uh, So we're looking at the high-speed rail network on the continent. We don't see why we should still be looking at uh, 1972 technology when there is new technology in rail. So we're establishing a unit at NEPAT uh, looking at how to link Africa through the high-speed rail network. Um, A lot of you would know that before we used to fly to Europe, before coming back to Africa, and now I am very proud to say that that is happening very rarely. Ethiopian Airways, which is the largest airline in Africa now, flies to almost every African country. Also, SAA has increased its destinations in Africa. Uh, Kenya has also
10: done so. According to the EU Commission Chairperson, allowing free movement between African countries has more advantages than disadvantages. She says those countries that have allowed free movement for citizens of African countries are enjoying economic spin-off in tourism and have also increased trade with other countries in the continent.
11: Now, the one that is the smallest in terms of geography, But they are the ones who opened up for all Africans. And what has happened to Rwanda? That kind of policy has seen them increase their tourism by 24%. It has seen them increase their trade with their neighbouring countries by 50%. And it has seen increase in trade with the DRC by 73%. So generally, the free movement of people has more advantages than disadvantages. And of course, if people are free to come in, they come and go. They don't stay because they know that they can come in tomorrow. But if they are not allowed to come in, once they come in, they will not want to go because they don't know whether they'll be able to get the opportunity to come back
10: again. Lamine Zuma says access to higher education on the continent has relatively improved over the years, but that it is not enough as yet. She also says the African Union wants to decrease dependence on donors, saying heads of states have all agreed that all countries will contribute an AU levy to fund operations of the organization. I'm Vosima Kosin in Deben.
0: Veterans of South Africa's ruling African National Congress, former armed wing Umkondoe Sizwe, have vowed to reclaim support for the governing party. The veterans held their national council in Johannesburg over the weekend. The council resolved to, amongst other things, fight for unity within the party, call for a review of the ANC constitution and to also remain faithful to the constitution of the republic. The council has warned that the ANC is at a point where it can lose electoral power. Power and that urgent steps are required to prevent this from happening. Amos Paho reports.
12: The ANC lost key metros such as tswane Johannesburg and Nelson Mandela Bay during the August 3rd local government elections, while the governing party's leadership accepted collective responsibility, no clear plan of action has been put forward to avert this situation in the 2019 national elections, and this loss of support is a key concern for the MK veterans. Retired Generals Piwenyanda says urgent steps are required to avert a looming calamity for the ANC in 2019.
13: We have contributed so much to ensuring the democracy that we now enjoy and who see a possible loss of electoral support for the African National Congress, even the ouster of the African National Congress in, in future ele- elections. It is incumbent upon us to try to intervene before the AAC dies. We can't watch when our organization is going through this pain.
12: The council, amongst other things, deliberated on the current state of the ANC, factionalism and the abuse of processes to influence decision-making. This include allegations of use of money to buy delegates at conferences. MK veteran Willy Lentlapo says the ANC constitution should be amended to address these tendencies.
13: A discussion, of course,
12: must be entertained and be sponsored
13: to say in what way can the, the constitution uh, with respect to procedures and structures, be you know reviewed in a way that uh, closes these uh, loopholes, these gaps uh, within uh, the management of the organisation. But uh, there is also a, a very uh, you know strong appreciation also that uh, the ANC as presently constituted may actually benefit from. Uh, the introduction of other bodies and structures within its constitution that will assist the better management of the organization in order to obviate the weaknesses that are there.
12: Nyanda says they hope to use various internal platforms to have their concerns resolved and have also received a buy-in from President Jacob Zuma.
13: The president of the ANC was met before the council and he gave his support to this initiative. So, it it, it cannot be that this initiative was outside the African National Congress. It's part of the African National Congress, and we will go back to the ANC uh, to interact with the ANC. That's why we say we're not only going to give these resolutions, we're going to discuss with the African National
12: Congress. The MK veterans hope to meet with the ANC leadership early next year to discuss the resolutions of their National Council. I'm Amos Power in Johannesburg.
0: Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
14: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, soul. Africa, amuka na unai.
2: Very good morning to you. In the headlines, gunfire has erupted in several parts of Kinshasa as the DRC's president, Joseph Kabila Pierre set to stay on despite the expiry of his mandate. Outgoing UN Chief Ban Ki-moon has urged the South African government to reconsider its decision to withdraw from the International Criminal Court and the Rome Statute, and Berlin's police force are treating the deadly crash of a lorry into a Christmas market crowd as a probable terrorist attack. Those are the stories making headlines.
0: Thank you, Anne. It's 8.31 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. There is a growing problem of organized criminal syndicates corrupting politics and politicians worldwide, especially at a local level, as according to Catalina Uribe, Programme Officer for UN partner organisation, the Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, otherwise known as International IDEA. The Swedish-based institute organised a panel discussion at UN headquarters this month on how to protect politics by deterring the influence of organised crime. Uribe explains.
15: International Idea is an intergovernmental organisation. We have uh, 28 member states uh, from around the world and our mandate is essentially to support democracy worldwide. So we work with assisting electoral processes, political parties, constitution building processes, etc.
4: And what's the particular concern about the role of organised crime and in what ways is it spreading and influencing different countries and the development of democracy?
15: Well, organised crime we have found is uh, one of the main threats to... democracy today. Essentially because organized crime doesn't only use violence or intimidation to conduct their business, but most importantly through corruption, which is a more obscure way, in a way, to conduct their business and to influence the whole democratic system so that they can better advance their interests. Organized crime drains the state from essential resources that these institutions require to provide services or other sort of actions that the state needs to provide, particularly in developing countries. Not because organized crime is not present in other places, but because their impact is particularly acute in those developing countries.
4: So what kind of areas are we talking about? Uh, Elections, um, just the general day-to-day conduct of government business?
15: One of the most vulnerable aspects of democracy when it comes to organized crime is local politics for many reasons. At the local level is where organized crime has uh, most of their interests. So controlling the ports where they need to uh, sort of take out their products or money. But local
4: politicians, I guess, are more vulnerable, aren't they? Exactly. Just as a basic uh, rule.
15: Exactly. They are more vulnerable. And there is much less spotlight on the local level. The media traditionally doesn't pay much attention to local level affairs. So accountability mechanisms are very weak at the local level. And that creates a very powerful opportunity for organized crime to influence those very places where they are interested in controlling the territory and other affairs.
4: Can you give us some examples of uh, cases that have come across your desk, things that you've been working on?
15: Well, we've been working with this all over the world, and really we have found very interesting and diverse ways uh, that organized crime has used to penetrate democracy. So from examples like Mexico is one of the most well-known. The Iguala case, for example, where 43 students were kidnapped and disappeared by the Guerreros Unidos um, crime syndicate is very telling because of the way uh, that the state was involved in this crime and the role that politicians had in masquerading the whole affair that was covering it it up exactly for many years so but it's not i have to say not just a problem in mexico another of our case studies uh, involves somalia where al-shabaab has been a quite powerful service provider in many of the places where many international organizations like the un and international idea have tried to uh, make sure that democracy takes root and organized crime is one of the main actors that hinders these processes
4: I suppose it uh, it also kind of erodes the public trust in the legal frameworks in the countries where this kind of corruption is endemic.
15: Exactly, and it's a vicious cir- circle because as people are more sceptical of politicians and democracy in general, then, for example, political parties have uh, fewer members and fewer membership fees to draw from. So they are more dependent on private donations, which aren't always very clean. So it, it is something that uh, really creates a very convenient space for organized crime and to penetrate these uh, institutions.
4: What kind of role can the UN play in in partnering with you in order to make uh, real changes in the countries that are vulnerable to to organized crime?
15: Well, what we are looking at today is um, how this phenomenon takes place and also how Peace operations and the whole international peace architecture can be better designed to take account of these dynamics. We know that these many of these missions are increasingly paying attention to the political dynamics in the places where they are based. That's
4: UN missions you're talking about specifically.
15: Yes, UN missions, but also in general, intergovernmental organizations and other international actors in their missions are increasingly support or taking account of how politics cannot be ignored as one of the key aspects of really creating an environment for peace. And when you don't take into consideration how organized crime hampers those efforts, then uh, the whole process is doomed to fail in a way.
4: So it's awareness building, but also presumably trying to support local politicians who are coming under pressure.
15: Yes, exactly. So we are also presenting a host of recommendations on how these different institutions and processes can be better designed to shield them from the uh, undue influence of organised crime.
4: Is it a growing problem?
15: We believe so. It's very hard really to estimate the impact because these are very obscure affairs to begin with. But what we see is that it is indeed a growing concern and it's something that Organized crime, because of their very nature, is um, very adaptable and it doesn't pay attention to borders and sovereignty issues. So as they take more advantage of globalization infrastructure, then uh, countries need to better adapt to those transnational affairs as well.
0: That was Catalina Uribe, Program Officer for UN Partner Organization, the Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, speaking to UN Radio's Matthew Wells. It's 8.38 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The non-governmental organization Reporters Without Borders says nearly three-quarters of the journalists killed this year were victims of deliberate targeted violence. A charity's recent report states that at least 74 professional and non-professional journalists lost their lives in connection with their work in 2016. Syria, where 19 journalists Journalists were killed this year is set to be the world's most deadliest country for journalists to work in. Afghanistan is listed as the second deadliest, followed by Mexico, where nine journalists lost their lives. More from Claire Khan-Sriber, head of the African desk at Reporters Without Borders.
14: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up.
1: The number rounded up by uh, Reporters Without Borders this year is of 74 journalists killed because of their professional occupation. Of course, uh, several other journalists were killed, but uh, it might have been in a a war situation uh, or in other contexts where it cannot be established that it was because of the profession, and therefore they're not uh, counted in this uh, roundup. What we have to notice is that three quarters of the journalists killed in 2016 were deliberately murdered and most of them, were two-thirds of them, were in uh, war zones. Conflicts are still the the, the biggest uh, killer of journalists, uh, not only because of collateral damage but because more and more journalists become the specific target of uh, attacks and of uh, killings. They're seen as the neutrality of the the position of the journalist is less and less so respected by uh, warring actors. There is also a lesser uh, number of journalists killed this year, but it's also because in several countries uh, journalists have had to flee completely their country, and therefore they are outside of the reach of authorities uh, or, uh, or other people who might have issues with press freedom. On the African continent, five uh, journalists were counted by reporters without borders as being killed because of their professional uh, capacity, two of them in Somalia, which uh, remains the most uh, deadly country for journalists uh, on the African continent. One of the, the most pressing issues, especially for the African continent, is the fact that of all those uh, cases, none of them have been investigated or, or tried as of today. So the issue of impunity uh, remains uh, extremely grave because if you have no consequences about killing a journalist, then there is nothing really preventing you from, from doing it. So we really call on a on a accountability mechanism to be put in place at the highest level uh, of the international community. Reporters Without Borders is calling for the establishment of a uh, of a special representative on the protection of journalists inside the, the UN and uh, and we really see this year that uh, the, the call, uh, the, the necessity for such a, a position uh, really remains full. And of course this alarming rate of, of the death of journalists speaks to the
16: failure of um, whether you want to say it's international initiatives that are really aimed at protecting journalists a failure of governments in the different countries to really um, advocate
1: for or, or protect journalists, doesn't it? Well, of course, the primary responsibility to, to protect uh, befalls the, the national government. Mm-hmm. So if there is a failure of investigation, it, it's, of course, the fault of the of the government to, to start with. Some governments are unwilling or unable to go forward with the relevant uh, prosecutions. Even when prosecutions occur, oftentimes uh, you will only have the low level executant of the of the assassination itself that might be uh, tried or people who will be Forced to confess that they have been involved in in the killing, but that the people ordering uh, the killing, because it's random, it's rarely a random act. Of course, it, it falls into a political logic. Uh, the people responsible for ordering the killing are are never uh, identified or prosecuted. Impunity remains the biggest problem, and uh, and so Reporters Without Borders is of course calling uh, regularly on the on the different governments to. Uh, to go forward with investigation uh, and provide justice, but oftentimes, as I said, we are uh, often disappointed because you will see that only the low-level, uh, random people will be will be will be identified as uh, being the murderers. But there is uh, really the due process is not often respected, and there is really a lot of doubt about their actual responsibility. And the actual people responsible uh, tend to remain free and untouched. You mentioned earlier that the number of deaths
16: of journalists this year have slightly decreased, but it's because most journalists were fleeing that country countries to which extent is this a good thing do we say it's a good thing because um they were fleeing their countries as a result they were safer or is it still not good because they get to a point where they have to now leave their countries how do we speak about that one
1: i think it's never a good thing if journalists are forced to to leave uh, their country and i you know i really do think that they would rather be able to to stay and continue their work when they do flee it's because Really, there are no working conditions left to to do their job, so they have no other alternative, and um, and oftentimes either they cannot work or they're just like physically in in, in great danger. So it's not a positive uh, development at all. It does raise a lot of, uh, of issues about so professional journalists leaving, and so how uh, social media and and citizen journalists sort of uh, pick up the role and also expose themselves uh, to to reprisals, etc. So we sort of like the the web of responsibility is, uh, is, uh, is widened and of potential targets is widened. This is why uh, this year we wanted to count, Reporters other Borders wanted to count both professional and uh, not professional journalists in its roundup because those unprofessional journalists, which is obviously not a, at all a derogatory term but means that people are working maybe not necessarily through media but more through social networks, their role has uh, risen exponentially. So they're really now a, a new actor to, to be reckoned with.
0: That was uh, Clea khan Schreiber, head of the African Desk at Reporters Without Borders on the line from Paris and France, speaking to Homotomo Pulane. A program that will use smartphones and tablet computers to improve access to essential medicines and increase that disease surveillance has been launched in Nigeria's Kaduna state in the northwest of the country, dubbed the SMS for Life 2.0. The program is the brainchild of the Swiss multinational pharmaceutical company, Novartis. The new program has gained support from officials in Nigeria's third most populous region, the Kaduna State, and will reportedly use simple, available and affordable technology. Thomas Lesage, program leader of the SMS for Life, explains how the initiative came about.
17: SMS for Life 2.0 was introduced to reinvigorate the success of the first SMS for Life implementation. And the idea of SMS for Life 2.0 is really to leverage now the power of tablet PCs to even have a bigger impact. So through the use of tablet PCs, we can monitor more stock items, more essential commodities and drug items. And we can also do more features in particular. We can go deeper in terms of disease surveillance and in terms of education for facility health workers.
16: How exactly will the program work and are there specific diseases that you will target?
17: Okay. So the program works in a very simple manner. The primary facility workers are equipped with a tablet PC through which they are asked to do their stock counting, do their stock reporting of a limited set of essential medicines and drugs. And they are also reporting a limited set of disease surveillance indicators. And through the tablet, we also disseminate Educational modules for their own consumption in order to increase their skills. Do
16: you expect the program to address some of the stockouts of medicines often faced in the primary healthcare facilities?
17: Yes, this is in fact the main purpose of the initiative, it's really to address the stockout situation by making the stock level very visible, very transparent at the primary healthcare facility, then the, uh, the higher levels of the Ministry of Health at the district level, provincial level, or state level. So in the case of Catalan we speak about local government areas. The local government area officials will see immediately where there are stockouts or near stockouts, and they can then immediately intervene and trigger cross-facility redistribution. That's really what the program is for. and it's been proven to work in other countries in Tanzania and also in South Africa, where a very similar uh, solution was implemented through Vodacom recently.
16: Do you think that as a continent we've realized the power of mobile technology as a platform you know to address the healthcare problems we face?
17: Yes, So here there is really a, a big hope that mobile technologies would really help make a difference. As I said, it's been proven in various programs, such as SMS for Life. But, you know, so we can really address, actually, the issue of stock-out, but we can also, through mobile technology, increase the quality of disease surveillance, which is very important to monitor where there are breakouts of specific diseases, but also through an increase or through an improved disease surveillance program, you can also make sure that the drugs are distributed where they are really needed. Beyond SMS for Life, you know, the use of mobile technology is very, very... can make a big difference, and His uh, Excellency El Rufai, the Governor of Kaduna State, has really triggered this program. He was really the one pushing for this program, and uh, there, he has a big mobile agenda, in fact, beyond the use of mobile technology in the health space, he's also asking our partners to deploy mobile technologies to support issues in the area of education as well as in the area of agriculture.
16: Now, this program builds on the SMS for Life program launched in 2009. How do you plan to deal with some of the difficulties the initial program faced?
17: The main difficulty that was faced by the program initially was to convince that it could really have an impact. And while the workers at the primary healthcare level are really convinced about the solution, and also most frequently the senior leaders, the Minister of Health, are really convinced as well of the potential impact, the middle management is not necessarily very much convinced in the first place so there is really a big component of the program we call it you know, change management to really enroll and convince the middle management the provincial or the district medical officers that they have to look at the data and they have to intervene on the data and how do you plan
16: on going about doing that
17: so uh, there is a lot of awareness that we need to do. So before launching, we need to have multiple series of meetings with the various levels of the Ministry of Health, so making sure that we understand who should be looking at the data and who has to look at the data. And then we also tailor specific training programs when we launch so that we share how the platform should be working with this middle management. Then. What is very key as well is to make sure that the top level, that is the office of the minister himself and maybe the office of the governor in the case of Ketuna, will also have access to the data and will request on a regular basis an update of the uh, usefulness and usage of the data.
16: Just finally there, any plans of expanding the program within the country?
17: So it's not yet decided, but yes, we are definitely exploring options with the authorities in Kaduna state and the authority at the federal level on how or which state should come next. And the program was presented in front of the Nigerian Governors' Forum with a very positive, it was very well welcomed and uh, we've been asked to see how we can scale up to the entire country. It will take a lot of time, of course, and we have to be very, very cautious, and each state needs to make a decision.
0: That was Thomas Lesage, a program leader of Novotis SMS for Life initiative, speaking to Elizabeth Ludicha on the line from London. A sports update up next with Figuilea Linguati.
14: In our sports update this hour, in two days' time, African champions leading defending champions Mamelodi Sundowns will find out their possible opponents in the first round of the top continental club tournament next year. The draw for the CAF Interclub Tournaments, that is the Champions League and the CAF Confederations Cup, will be done in Cairo, Egypt on Wednesday. Musimani expects a very tough CAF campaign
18: this year. As we've been talking about international football global football that's where we belong it's really 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 our season starting in, in february and we, we we i saw the teams that have qualified for the champions league has already gave these, these teams Zamalek is back al is back Mazembe is back The big boys are back Satif is back Esperanza is back Etoile Sahel They're back It's going to be more tougher this year You know And unfortunately The Zescos are out of Champions League now.
5: now
18: The Zanako now The Zanako So you see You can you, you can come once And you go out yeah. So you've got to keep coming there But you've got to win the league Or come second in South Africa So so that's the level and, and that's what VET is going to face now eh? And that's what we're going to face So now can you compete at home and can you compete in Africa at the same time? Be uh, local champ, uh, South African champs and uh, continental champs It's big. It's not easy. It's going to be difficult. And you're going to compromise the cups in between. Yeah? So, so it, it is for us now to say, wow, this is what's happening. This is the situation. What are we doing now? We learn, we go through that, and we improve.
14: Bidvest Vets Champions League and Cave Confederations Cup representatives, SuperSport United and Platinum Stars are most likely to feature in the preliminary stages that kick off in the second weekend of February. The first round will stage pace place in the second week of March. On to cricket news, the appeal hearing of Protea's captain Fav Plessis against the International Cricket Council's ICC charge of ball tempering has concluded without a verdict being released. Duplessis was charged after the second test against Australia in Hobart last month. In one of the biggest stories of the year, soon dubbed Mintgate, Duplessis was seen on camera rubbing his finger on a mint in his mouth and then shining the ball. He was fined 100% of his match fee, but quickly decided to appeal the decision with the backing of cricket South Africa. It seems remains unclear as to when the ICC will release their final decision regarding his appeal. Meanwhile, with 50 days to go for ICC Women's World Cup Qualifier 2017, the ICC has announced the event schedule which brings together 10 sides in their quest to claim four remaining places in the event proper. A tournament will run from the 7th to the 21st of February 2017 at four Colombo venues and the sides finishing in the top four of the Super 6 stage will join defending champions Australia, host England, former winner New Zealand, and reigning ICC World 2020 champions West Indies in the ICC Women's World Cup 2017 from the 26th of June to the 23rd of July. In rugby news, Bledsburg star winger Vena Kok believes that they have done well in the first two tournaments of the HSBC World Rugby 7 Series after winning the Dubai League and finishing second in Cape Town last weekend
17: yeah no, I think um we we had a good two weeks. The guys stick, stick together very well and we played some good rugby um, Unlucky the last one we, we couldn 't pull through, but I think the guys did phenomenal and we can just uh, focus on the on the positives and take the festive season and then when we come back, we have to work again no definitely it's um, it, like I, like I say, it is a cruel game, but um, that's, that's what makes it such a nice game. You, you get another chance. And I think going into, into the rest of the season and going into Wellington, we, there's a few things we have to go and look at and just be better.
14: That's your sport news this hour. Africa Rise and Shine Africa Zorna Africa Amuka Na Unai
0: Recapping our top stories, on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Tensions remain high in the DRC as President Kabila's mandate ends and the AU Commission Chairperson calls for more intra-Africa trade. That wraps up Africa rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, Producers Pumuzura Magadza and Komutu Mopulane, Technical Producer. Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rajshan Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of an hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Java with the song titled Utando. Mama.
19: Yeah, eh, tando, yung pung tando tando loy dile. Rocko in it, don't appreciate it, mm, they just don't appreciate it, yeah, yeah, Gutan Dalboni quando la me mi si se me muovendo il lunese sole mi eh It took Pindumon and Tandumon, Pindumon and Temple Mondo, Pindumon and Tatum, alarming and better. Mamma Tanda won't get got to have him in the night on the O mundo quer noa que me O mundo quer que eu lembre Takaki ya simina <laughs> ngi hambile Isotandole la nenda bu kunelimelle Fulla mevalindizio Samhlabe ni la naqwe lingo yeah Ave vas e vas mama quando la o batalla ngamba sala mo tando lome mi crisi mi crisi u benjulo ami mo buttando lungo le sulle ma